All right. Well, church, uh, this morning, uh, we find ourselves in the second uh, half of a conversation that Paul is having with the Christians in Rome about how we are to interact with one another within the life of the church, despite the differences that we may experience concerning disputable matters and the various convictions that we carry and the lifestyles that we live. Last week, Jennifer did a wonderful job of explaining the first half of Paul's argument to us. As she reminded us how we are to think about one another regarding the differences in our faith. And her message from last week was really summed up for us in the beginning of our passage for today. Where in verse 13, Paul began by saying, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. So the first instruction that Paul gives to the church concerning how to live with one another amongst our differences is that we are not to think critically or harshly or judgmentally or in a demeaning way towards one another in regard to the disputable matters of faith. That's where Paul's instruction to the church about disputable matters begins, but it's not where it ends. Because after giving the church instructions concerning their thoughts of what they are not to think, Paul then gives them instructions regarding their actions and of something that they are to do. When he says, let us not pass judgment on one another, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. And so we not only have instructions about our attitudes to not think negatively towards one another, but we also have instructions regarding our actions to make sure that we never trip our brother or sister up in their life of faith. So what does that mean? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we look at the second half of Romans chapter 14. So if you if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it with me to to uh, Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 13. And let's consider together the exhortation to never put a stumbling block in the way of a fellow Christian. And before we jump into this passage, I have to take just a moment for two important clarifications that are necessary for us to be able to understand Paul's instructions and to get our application of them correct. The first clarification is that throughout this passage, Paul is talking about disputable matters In the church. Now, disputable matters of the faith are those topics which fall into the category of things which God in the scriptures never clearly forbids nor ever clearly commands. They are the various beliefs or convictions which we carry that the scriptures never tell us we must do or never tell us that we uh, cannot do. And so in that way, they are non-essential to the message of the gospel and to our salvation. And the reason that's important to understand is because there are uh, certain essential matters of the faith, which are core gospel issues that do pertain to our salvation, in which we are called to judge one another uh, and to correct one another within the church when they are transgressed. And we see that reality played out a number of times throughout the New Testament. 
For example, in Galatians chapter 2, when Peter withdrew from table fellowship with the Gentiles and would only eat his meals with the Jews, when he did that, he was violating an essential issue of the faith because he was accentuating a division between the Jews and the Gentiles that Jesus had explicitly torn down. The gospel eliminated the dividing wall between ethnicities. And so when Paul saw that Peter's conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, he judged Peter as wrong. And he called him back into alignment with the core tenets of the faith, that all were accepted by God, regardless of their ethnicity. Peter needed to be judged and corrected in that case because his actions were leading people astray. Or there's the time in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when Paul instructed the church to both judge and discipline the church member who was brazenly and unashamedly practicing sexual immorality. That person was to be removed from their fellowship until such a time as he repented of his sins because he was treating as okay what God had clearly said is wrong. And his behavior was defiling the church and was marring the witness of Christ before the world. And so that needed to be addressed. So so there are a handful of core gospel issues which, when they are transgressed, need to be called into account and condemned and corrected. But that is not what Paul is dealing with here. Here, Paul is dealing with what he calls matters of opinion in chapter 14, verse 1. These are issues that people may have strong and passionate opinions about, views about, but they are not essential to living a faithful Christian life. And hence, they are disputable among believers. And it is those disputable matters which Paul told us last week we should not judge one another regarding, and which he will tell us this week not to trip one another up with. That's the first clarification. The second clarification is that throughout this passage, Paul uses language describing and differentiating between Christians as either weak or strong. And we need to understand that at the outset of this passage that is that when Paul is describing a Christian as weak, he is not using that term in a, in a pejorative or, or a negative term, manner. Right? Uh, Paul is not describing a weakness of their character or of their will. Or of their convictions. Instead, he's describing a weakness in their assurance of whether or not their faith permits them to do certain things. In this particular passage, Paul's talking about the weak Christians in regard to those who do not feel free to eat meat that might have been sacrificed to an idol, or uh, who do not feel free to drink alcohol. And who feel required to observe the Sabbath on a particular day. In our day and age, the weak in faith could be those who hold very strong views about baptism being needed to be done in one particular manner or way. Or or someone who isn't sure whether or not it's okay for Christians to to wear jewelry or to get tattoos. uh, Or to watch certain kinds of movies. Whatever it may be. There's a a number of, of, infinite number maybe, of options there. So Paul isn't using this word weak as a negative term, but rather as a descriptor or a definer of the state of a believer's conscience 
in regard to certain matters. And Paul's point in highlighting these differences between weak and strong believers is so that we will understand one another. Not only so that we won't think poorly of or look down upon our brothers or sisters who view matters differently than we do, but that we will actually go out of our way to care for one another in these differences that exist. That's what Paul tells us in our passage today. That we should never put a stumbling block in the way of a brother or sister in Christ in regard to these disputable matters. So this morning I want to look at why that is the case. And Paul's argument, it goes like this. Beginning in verse 14, he says, That I know... And am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Paul is a strong Christian in this regard. He has a total Christian freedom to rightly enjoy anything and everything in life because he receives it all as a good gift from God. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul says that that everything God created is good. And that nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and by prayer. So Paul can eat any kind of food because he gives thanks for it as a gift from God. And Paul can freely enjoy any kind of drink because he gives thanks for it as a gift from God. And Paul can freely enjoy any kind of art because he gives thanks for it as a gift from God. Whatever it might be. Everything created by God is good, Paul says. Food is good, drink is good, beauty is good, playing is good, relationships are good, sex is good, work is good, rest is good. All of life is good when it is received with thanksgiving as a gift from God and rightly used for its intended purposes in our lives. And so nothing is to be rejected when it is received in that light. That is the total freedom of conscience of a strong Christian. To them, everything rightly received is clean and good and gift and free to be enjoyed. But that's not the case for everyone. For some people, certain things that a strong Christian may receive as as clean and appropriate, to them may seem unclean and wholly inappropriate. And so the weaker Christian's conscience will struggle to know that same freedom. And it's easy to understand why. Consider if you grew up in a home where alcohol was badly abused. Or if you abused it yourself. For all of your life, you saw or experienced firsthand the destructive and devastating effects of the misuse of alcohol. It would be very easy to understand then why a person who had previously seen or experienced the misuse of alcohol but who is now trying to live a godly life, would be convinced that there is no proper place for the use of alcohol in the life of a Christian. And they would struggle to understand why anyone would want to use it at all. Or imagine if someone before they were a Christian, uh, every weekend would go out dancing. And that dancing always led to something that they later regretted in the morning. It'd be easy to understand how that person, once they became a Christian and were trying to live a godly life, would think that there's no good use for dancing in their life. That was a a part of the old them. It shouldn't be a part of the new them. Their conscience wouldn't allow them to do it. 
Because there was too much history and too many associations. And they knew all too well the shadow side of certain activities. Their conscience is weak in that regard. And what Paul has to say at the end of verse 14 about these types of situations is that if a Christian thinks that something might be wrong, well, for them to do it would then be wrong. If you're concerned that something is not right or is not good, then for you to go and do it would not be okay. Because you are violating your conscience if you do so. You are acting against the convictions of your faith in that moment. And what Paul says in verse 23 is that whatever does not proceed from faith is a sin. And so it's wrong for you to do something that you think is wrong. Even if it's okay for other people to do that very same thing if they don't think it's wrong. Does that make sense? That's the tension that exists between the weak and the strong in faith. And so it's easy to see how these types of issues can become areas in our common life together where we can easily trip one another up with our differences of opinions. And what Paul says to the church in verse 15 is that if your brother or sister is grieved by what you eat, then you are no longer walking in love towards them. If they are grieved by what you drink or by what you wear or by the language that you use or by the music that you listen to or whatever it might be. If the freedom that we have in our actions are causing a brother or sister in Christ to struggle with their conscience of faith, then we are not acting in love towards them. Instead, we're actually doing them harm. In verse 15, Paul says that by insisting on exercising our freedom as the strong, we are destroying the weaker brother or sister for whom Christ died. And it's easy to see how. If we insist on exercising our freedoms in the presence of one whose conscience is weak, that can be confusing and discouraging to their faith. It can be isolating to their experience of Christian community. It can be crisis-inducing, even faith-breaking in their Christian walk. And so the exhortation of this passage is summed up in verse 20 where Paul says, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Do not, for the sake of your freedom and of your enjoyment, tear down someone whom God is building up. If we exercise our freedoms in an inconsiderate way towards those who struggle in conscience, then we are actually working against God in His redeeming work in that person's life. We are tearing down the one that He is building up. And church, hopefully it doesn't need to be said. But just so that we're all on the same page, let me be abundantly clear that it is never a good thing To oppose the work that God is doing in the world. That's never a place that we want to be. Instead, Paul says in verse 21, that if our brother or sister are grieved by something that we are doing, then it is good not to eat meat, or not to drink wine, or not to do anything that causes our brother or sister to stumble. Paul says it's better to give up our rights and our freedoms of enjoying the good gifts of God rather than to tempt someone to sin 
and to cause them to stumble by our exercising those freedoms and gifts. And so when it is necessary, we're called to forego our freedoms out of care and concern and love for our brothers and sisters so that they do not trip and stumble and fall over the conscience of their faith. And while that may all sound nice and good and right and maybe obvious, like the kind and loving thing to do, for a people like us, who live in a nation that idolizes its freedoms, and I use that word very intentionally, and for a church like ours that has largely been formed by an evangelical tradition, It emphasizes the individual aspects of our faith over the communal components of our faith. For a people who too often treat the founding fathers as if they were the twelve apostles. And whose faith is all about me and Jesus instead of we and Jesus. To tell a people like us to give up our freedoms for the well-being of another. To tell a people like us to lay down our rights out of concern for the sensitivities of the community around us. To tell a people like us to adapt our expression of faith for someone who is weak. That's easier said than done. Why would we do that? What would ever motivate a people like us to do a thing like that? Well, Paul tells us. In chapter 15, he says that we who are strong are to treat others this way, not just because it's the right thing to do, which it is, but because we actually have an obligation in this regard. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. This isn't just a suggestion by Paul. It's a Christian duty and a debt that we owe to our faith to sacrifice our own rights and freedoms in order to please our neighbor and to build them up. Why? Verse three, because Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. We are to forego our rights for the building up of others because Jesus forewent his rights for the building up of us. You are to forego your rights. for The building up of others. Because Jesus forewent his rights for the building up of you. So in verse 7, Paul says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So let me ask you a question this morning. How did Jesus welcome you? What did Jesus give up in order to welcome you into his kingdom and into the fellowship of his church? Jesus was willing to lay down his rights. So that we could be made right. Jesus was willing to give up his freedoms so that we could be set free. Jesus was willing to be condemned so that we could be forgiven. 
Jesus was willing to bear the wrath of God so that we could be spared the wrath of God. Jesus was willing to lay down his life in order that we might find our lives. Jesus was willing to go into the grave so that we could go up to our God. Do you see how this works? Jesus gave up every one of his rights. And he removed every stumbling block that was in our path in order to accept us and to build us up in him. He didn't make us become Jewish or force us to obey all of the laws of Leviticus in order to be accepted. We didn't have to memorize the Bible or pass a morality test in order to gain access into his kingdom. He never required us to be good enough or smart enough or rich enough or have our life put together enough or any of that. Jesus removed every obstacle from our path that may have been separating us from life with God. He cleared every stumbling stone that might have tripped us along the way so that we could be built up by God. He removed them all. All except for one. Did you hear it in our Old Testament and Gospel readings this morning? In Isaiah chapter 8, God spoke to Isaiah and said, The Lord of hosts will become a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling, and many shall stumble on it. Hundreds of years later, when Jesus entered Jerusalem at the end of his life, he referred to himself as this stone that the builders had rejected. And he said that the one who falls on this stone will be broken. But when this stone falls on anyone... They will be crushed. And in our reading from John 14, Jesus declared himself to be this one and the only stumbling stone between God and man. When he said that he is the way and the truth and the life and that no one can come to the father except through him. Jesus has removed every barrier that exists between us and our relationship with God, all of them, except for himself. To get to God, to be in his kingdom, to be a part of his church, you have to go through Jesus. You either have to fall on him in your own brokenness and need, or else he will fall upon you in judgment. There's no other option. He is the stumbling stone. The church approved way to trip someone up. But he's the only stumbling stone. Every other one has been removed. That's how God has welcomed us. He welcomes us in and through Jesus and only Jesus. And this is how we are to welcome one another as well. In and through Jesus and only Jesus. For the kingdom of heaven is not a matter of eating or drinking or any of that other stuff, Paul says. But it is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, which we access through Christ. So church, as Jesus has done for us, let us do for one another. Let us remove every stumbling stone that might cause us to trip in our lives of faith, except for Jesus. 
Let us keep him and only him as the one thing which stands between our relationships with one another and our relationships with the Father in heaven. Let us welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. And when we do, it will be for the glory of God, for the good of our brothers and sisters in faith. Amen.